I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is Not. The New Testament wasn't written to modern Americans. Each word was drafted in a time and place where the governing authorities were set up to persecute the Jewish people and the early Christians. And each New Testament document was circulated in times and places where things only got worse. And yet somehow, the New Testament approach to political power remains radically different from just about every modern assumption of how justice and goodness is accomplished in the world. Paul wrote a letter to Titus, who was a Greek disciple of Jesus that had become Paul's trusted companion and co-worker, as Titus was sent to the island of Crete to visit and correct a network of house churches that were planted there. So these new Greek Christians were struggling to separate the world of their upbringing and culture with their new lives as followers of Rabbi Jesus. Because the Cretan Christians knew Zeus. They were raised with Zeus. They were raised to believe certain things about Zeus. The world around them told them things about Zeus. Was Jesus another Zeus? Was Jesus like Zeus at all? And that wasn't the only problem. While Titus is there, he's supposed to appoint new elders over the churches in Crete because the old ones, or the current ones rather, ethnically Jewish Cretans, they had begun to lead these new Christians astray by teaching, that, teaching them that in order to be saved, they had to uphold all the rules and regulations of the Torah, which is the first five books of our Old Testament. Not to mention the fact that these old elders were morally corrupt. They were using their platform and for, for, uh, position for financial gain. So there was all sorts of problems. Everything was a mess. The Cretan Christians were muddling their theology with Greek gods. They were leading wild and sinful lifestyles while corruption hovered over the leadership of the church. So it was an ordeal to say the least. And Paul writes to Titus saying, look, the church in Crete is going to have to change. When you go there, there's lots of work to be done. It's going to have to prove its redemptive power in the public square because as it is, the church in Crete is making a mockery of the gospel. But, strangely, in order to accomplish this big gospel takeover, Paul doesn't suggest any of the things that you would think. He doesn't suggest revolt. He doesn't suggest social upheaval. He doesn't suggest lobbying or legislation. Instead, he makes simple but incredible commands about the lives of Christians and communities in Crete. Basically, it amounts to, listen, don't hide from the culture. Don't go isolate yourselves and become a walled-off community and not interact with anyone because you're scared of them. And don't reach for power over the culture. Don't try to impose your will and your ways on everyone else. But live and love in the world in the ways of gentleness and peace and self-sacrificial love, rejecting the corruption of the world around you. So there's no culture war. There's no assimilation into the culture. There's an entirely different way of life. So look down at Titus chapter 3, in which Paul writes, beginning with verse 1, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Listen to this one. To slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. 
The New Testament is peppered with commands like this one. And there are times when Americans love it because divorced of its context, it can sound a lot like Paul is telling modern Christians to get behind a certain political party or a certain politician. But the New Testament wasn't written for modern Americans, spoiler alert. Each word was drafted in a time and place where the governing authorities were set up to persecute the Jewish people and the early Christians. Any system that stood in any opposition to the Roman Empire and to Roman rule, whether that opposition was direct or indirect or practical or theoretical, any opposition must go. And each New Testament document was circulated in times and place where things only got worse, not better. And they would have been reading Paul's words again and again, be subject to the ruling authorities. Jesus and Paul and the authors of the New Testament understood that the power structures were often, if not always, corrupt, violent, and evil. We don't have any writings in the New Testament or from the early church that command Christianizing the empire. The empire is fundamentally unchristian. So instead, the approach is simple. Lead quiet lives. Don't revolt. Love your enemies. And as long as they don't force you to disobey Jesus, follow the rules. For many modern readers of the New Testament, an approach like this one seems hopelessly naive, lazy, privileged, and unrealistic. The real way to enact change, says Christians on both the right and the left, is via the power of government legislation, our people in charge rather than their people in charge. And if you don't get behind this vision, you are the villain, which creates a vexing conundrum. The power of the empire does not operate according to the teachings of Jesus, which is radical, self-sacrificial love, nonviolence, blessing enemies rather than cursing them. And consequently, the leaders of the empire cannot translate the teachings of Jesus to the world of political power. You can, you can try to legislate behavior, but that will never reform hearts. And that can be really hard to accept. And it's not for no good reason that so many Christians chase after political power. We can't help but see the brokenness and the corruption and the evil in our world, and we want it to change. And that's good. God gave us that innate sense that when something is wrong, it should be changed. But no one politician or political party encapsulates God's vision for justice and goodness. So depending on personality and preference and, and probably upbringing is one of the bigger ones, people tend to pick one party or one side and demonize the other one. And those are the only two options. When I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, it was my parents' generation deifying the right and demonizing the left. Today, it's more like millennials and Gen Z deifying the left and demonizing the right. And to maintain that party allegiance while claiming it's the Christian thing to do, you have to do all kinds of wacky, inconsistent stuff when it inevitably doesn't work. So I'm going to tell you a story that some might find frustrating. How's that for the setup of the story? I didn't make it up, so don't blame it on me. Please be aware. Please bear with me. You know, if you're new, I want you to know that I, I thought about putting some disclaimers in the openings of this series saying things like, no, usually it's not this incendiary. Usually it's not this controversial. But then I figured no one's going to believe that. We teach Jesus in the Bible, so that's not exactly true, is it? It's often like this, I'm sorry to say, or not so sorry to say. Now, what follows is an excerpt from an open letter written by a prominent evangelical leader. This is the quote. I think it's, yeah, here it is. 
What has alarmed me throughout this episode has been the willingness of my fellow citizens to rationalize the president's behavior even after they suspected and later knew that he was lying because the economy is strong, millions of people have said. It's nobody's business what he does with his personal life. That disregard for morality is profoundly disturbing to me. This prominent evangelical leader went on to add this. When a corporate executive is similarly accused, especially if numerous women claim to have been groped or abused, that man is fired, period. There was plenty of evidence during the first presidential election that the president had a moral problem. Obviously, his supporters are motivated not by the welfare of women, but by raw political power. Now, this was written by James Dobson, founder of Focus on the Family. He wrote these things in, in 1998 about Bill Clinton. In 2016, and then in 2020, however, James Dobson often and frequently praised Donald Trump, another president who, like Clinton, has been the focus of numerous accusations of sexual misconduct and assault. Another, another prominent evangelical leader, Wayne Grudem, similarly condemned Bill Clinton in 1998, writing this, We are aware that certain moral qualities are central to the survival of our political system among which are truthfulness, integrity, respect for the law, respect for the dignity of others, adherence to the constitutional process, and a willingness to avoid the abuse of power. We, Christians, reject the premise that violations of these ethical standards should be excused so long as the leader remains loyal to a particular political agenda and the nation is blessed by a strong economy, Wayne Grudem wrote in 1998. But, on September 24th of this year, Grudem said of President Trump, I recognize, and evangelicals in general who support Donald Trump recognize that he has character flaws, but they do not seem to us to be disqualifying. Character matters, but policy also matters. Now, my point is, isn't at all to get into the weeds arguing about the moral integrity of Donald Trump. Trump. Mr. Trump is not a Christian, so I do not expect him to behave like one. My point is that American evangelicalism is famously politicized. The political insistence of American evangelicalism is easily chief among the reasons cited by former or would-be Christians for their lack of faith. And it's not just that American evangelicalism has endorsed this candidate or denounced that one. It is as these quotes from 1998 and 2020 so blatantly expose, American evangelicalism is willing to demonstrate outrageous inconsistency and hypocrisy in its values and positions in order to maintain its death grip on its political party and political power and its allegiance not to Jesus, but to parties and politicians. In response to Wayne Grudem, Anabaptist theologian Scott McKnight wrote this, he said, Grudem has time and time aligned evangelicalism with the powers. This endorsement of Trump is another instance. Evangelicalism's status in American society is at an all-time low because of this alignment, and Grudem is one of the primary voices of the alignment. Evangelicalism has sold itself to the gods of this age. It is either going to die out or change course. The best way to seek the good of our nation is to be the church in the nation, not confuse the church and the nation. Last week, we began a series intended to guide our church through a difficult and often uncomfortable conversation about God and government. 
as we stumble across what often seems like a dystopian nightmare world of political division, injustice, violent outrage. I think McKnight says it well. The best way to seek the good of our nation is to be the church in the nation, not confuse the church and the nation. But what does that mean? And how do we be the church in the nation rather than confusing the church and the nation? To answer that question, we're looking to the teachings of Jesus and the writings of Scripture and the practices of the early church to rediscover the subversive rhetoric of the first Christians who often said and taught, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Last week, I made the case from Romans 12 and 13 that Jesus, Paul, and the early church understood a radical distinction between the governments of the world and the church. If you weren't here, please go back, catch up on the podcast. This is kind of foundational. Uh, this is the foundation on which we will build the series, really. The state, we learn in Romans 13, this is a brief catch-up, uses the sword, for example. It exacts, re exacts revenge. It represents wrath to maintain social order. It demands taxes and obedience from its citizens. The church, on the other hand, we're told in Romans 12, before that, rejects the sword, leaves revenge to God, doesn't participate in it, represents compassion and self-sacrificial love, and offers taxes and submission to rulers and authorities. Neither one can possibly do the other thing. They operate on radically different presuppositions. But our hyper-politicized world has always condemned any political inaction as laziness or passivity or even privilege. In early 2005, very different political landscape than this one, I was at a dinner with an older Christian and she leaned over the table and she asked, Josh, did you vote for George W. Bush this election? And I told them over dinner, no, I did not. And she sat back, shaking her head, tisking, and said with a smirk, so, you're what I call a sleepy Christian. Since I had not supported her preferred political candidate, mine was a lazy discipleship. I had missed some crucial obligation as a Christian. In 2016, I had a very similar conversation with a very different person, they asked what I was doing as a pastor to involve myself politically in order to combat and dethrone Donald Trump. And when I did not have a satisfying answer for this person, one that included being decidedly pro politically proactive, they shook their heads in disapproval. It must be nice, they sighed, to be so privileged that you don't feel like you need to do anything at all. Were they right? Was I a sleepy Christian for neglecting to vote for George Bush? Was I selfishly privileged for not hitting the campaign trail against Donald Trump? And would either thing have been the Christian thing to do? How do disciples of Jesus advance justice and goodness in the world if not through the power over systems and structures of government? In a fantastic essay published this year titled A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory, pastor and author Tim Keller noted this. He said, In the Bible, Christians have an ancient, rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and attractive understanding of justice. Biblical justice differs in significant ways from all secular alternatives without ignoring the concerns of any of them. Now, Keller's insight in said essay is so helpful that I'm going to spend the next little bit stealing from it or borrowing from it, whatever. He's not here. 
Things are going to sound kind of luxury for a little stretch, so please bear with me. If you hang in there, I will reward you with a clip from The Simpsons. It's kid-friendly, so you'll be fine. You guys awake? You still with me? Thank you so much. All right. Scottish philosopher Alasdair MacIntyre argued that every definition of justice is built from a person's philosophy of a few different things. Human nature, human purpose, morality, and practical rationality, which is how we argue that something is true or justify the way that we do things in life and the world. So MacIntyre argues for four different justice traditions. He said you've got classical, which is kind of Homer to Aristotle. You've got the biblical model for justice. And then you've got the enlightenment model for justice, which gave way to the modern liberal approach. And the modern liberal approach kind of fragmented into a few variations. See, the enlightenment thinkers set out to build a foundation for morality and justice apart from God and religion. Justice, they argued, can and should be derived from human reason alone. We don't need a God to tell us right or wrong. We can figure that out for ourselves, said the Enlightenment thinkers. But Enlightenment philosopher David Hume came along and argued that this is impossible. There's no objective paradigm for justice or morality. There's only what people make up, essentially. So Hume's thinking, taken to its logical conclusion and shaped Uh, eventually shaped what we have now as modern progressivism. Any moral claim is basically a cultural construct. It's built by and based on our emotional preferences and the emotional preferences of the culture that constructs them. In other words, there is no objective good and evil written into the ordinance of the universe. We just sort of impose ideals based on what we prefer. And it differs from time to time, and it certainly differs from place to place. And McIntyre pointed out how untenable this line of thinking becomes. For any philosophy of justice to make any sense at all, someone has to have an argument for what human beings are here for in the first place. So he uses this famous illustration of a wristwatch. He argues that it's possible to say whether or not a watch is good or bad unless you know what the watch is for. So if the watch is for hammering nails then it's a bad watch. It's no good. But if the watch is for telling time, then it's a good watch. So similarly, McIntyre argues that the secular understanding of human purpose can't possibly comment on justice. If humans aren't really here for any meaningful reason other than chance, on what basis can anyone ever argue whether or not something is good or bad for humans to do? And what difference does it make, really? It doesn't really matter. You may feel as if a human being should be treated a certain way, Well, why should your feelings supersede someone who disagrees? And on what grounds and on whose authority? To what can the secular thinker appeal in order to argue for justice or human rights or equality and on down the list other than because I said so? Now, of course, the Bible presents a detailed account of both human purpose, why we're here, what we're for, and justice, what is right and what is wrong. We're here for a reason, and from that reason, we can derive certain principles of right and wrong, and good and evil, and justice and injustice. And Keller outlines five basic overarching principles of biblical justice. So do me a favor, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, we're going to do a little bit of Bible work, but you'll be fine. Remember, there's a clip, a Simpsons clip coming. Keep that in. That's the carrot that I'm dangling. The first principle of biblical justice is community. Shocker, right? But it's not just the whole share life and meet in small groups thing. It's that the Bible has absolutely no paradigm for individualism. 
all of life, the Bible presupposes, exists and unfolds in an interrelated network of community, much to the chagrin of the American sensibility. You are not your own. You do not exist in a vacuum, and you do not have a right to your own resources. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke summarizes the idea this way. In the Bible, the righteous, or the sadiq, are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And this is really evident all across the scriptures, but a beautiful example comes from the Torah, actually, in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Look down at verse 17. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from the trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your, vi- the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave them for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Now, the Hebrew wording that my Bible translates as leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, it actually indicates ownership. So more literally, it's like it belongs to the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. Now, that's about as contrary to the American spirit as it gets. You did the work in your field, and you could maximize your profit and productivity, and yet it belongs to God who says that the community has a claim on it. The system God establishes doesn't demand that excess be confiscated and redistributed by those in power, but that it is willingly and joyfully given over to those in need as an act of worship and remembrance of the goodness of God. This paradigm of property and ownership can't exist in a capitalist or a socialist system. It's something else entirely. The next principle of biblical justice is equity. Look down at Deuteronomy 24, verse 14. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they're poor and they're counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So it doesn't matter if a person is part of your tribe or not. In the Bible, all human beings are made in the image of God and thus equally imbued with dignity and purpose. Thus, Keller argues, any system of justice or government in which decisions or outcomes are determined by how much money parties have is a stench before God. So the next principle of biblical justice is corporate responsibility. Now, Corporate responsibility is a very complicated idea for the modern Western mind to process. We talked about it at length in our Cries of the Oppressed series a few months ago. In the story of the Bible, entire families and nations and even generations of people understand their identity as woven into the group or woven into the tribe, into the people. So the sin of the people burdens the heart of the individual, though they themselves might be innocent of that sin. 
God's relationship with individuals is affected by his relationship with their people and their tribe and their family and their nation. There are all sorts of shocking examples of this throughout the Bible. In Daniel 9, for example, Daniel repents for the sin of his ancestors despite the fact that he did not participate in that sin. In 2 Samuel 21, God holds Israel responsible for sin committed by one man, King Saul, despite the fact that at that point in the story, Saul was dead. Or God holds families responsible for the sin of one member or even entire generations responsible for the sin of those that came before them. And this sounds to us as terribly unfair, but that only reveals how individualistic our thinking tends to be. The Bible, again, understands human existence as an interrelated community, whether we want it to be or not. So when I make a sinful decision, when and if, I am not the only person involved in the event or who suffers its consequences. The, the, who, who suffers its consequences. The actions of the individual affect and shape the community, and the community participates in that exchange, and they are affected by it. Now, many of you know from experience in your own community, if one person does something that, uh, uh, sinful or they bail out or they flake, the entire community is affected and the entire community is responsible for the way that sin is handled. The person who bails out likes to think of their decision as a personal one, but it affects everyone. And so every human is to be aware of and accountable for patterns of sin across communities and families and even generations of people corporate responsibility. But there's a tension here. The next principle of biblical justice is individual responsibility. In the Bible, the individual is responsible for their own sin, but not always for their own outcomes, meaning when you perpetuate evil, that's on you. But when you suffer evil, it isn't always because you did anything wrong. Think of Jesus and the question of who sinned that this guy is blind, and Jesus says, nobody. Everything from Poverty to sickness to death can result from complicated cycles of chaos in our broken world. And we are never in complete control of the direction our lives take. But we are responsible for what we do in the face of that chaos and evil. Again, Keller argues, the reality of corporate sin does not swallow up individual moral responsibility, nor does individual responsibility prove the reality of corporate evil. To deny or largely deny either, is to adopt one of the secular views of justice rather than a biblical one. Corporate responsibility and individual responsibility coexist in the Bible's paradigm for justice. And the final principle of biblical justice is advocacy. Again and again, from cover to cover of the Bible story, God demonstrates a unique concern for the poor and powerless and oppressed, and he commands his people to do the same. Now, this is not favoritism. It's not partiality. This is justice. But the Bible never advocates that we speak up for the rich and powerful, not because they don't matter to God, but because they don't need our advocacy the poor and powerless do. In God's economy, those with power and wealth and advantage are to creatively utilize their privileges to divest and redistribute their resources for those who have less as an acknowledgement of their equal dignity and value before God and before the community. Community, equity, corporate and individual responsibility, and advocacy for the poor, marginalized, and the oppressed. Now, 
We have to paint with broad strokes here for the sake of time, but there's some general agreement that on the other hand, outside of the biblical paradigm for justice, that there are at least four basic secular or not Christian paradigms of justice operating in our culture. The first is libertarian. In this paradigm, justice promotes individual freedom. It's the basic stuff, the right not to be, to be harmed, the, the right to have private property or free speech. So libertarians typically advocate for smaller governments in order to preserve individual freedoms. Now, the libertarian view is highly individualistic. It's about my rights, my stuff, my freedom. So it doesn't take a theologian to understand why this view is completely untenable within the Bible's understanding of community and corporate responsibility and equity and advocacy and on down the list. Libertarianism understands personal responsibility. It gets that part, but it cannot grasp the Bible's disdain for individualism. You don't have a right to your own stuff, and you don't exist in a vacuum. Now, moving along the spectrum to left to right, next is a liberal view of justice in which fairness is the primary concern. In this view, individuals have personal and economic rights, not just to property, but to medical care or education and so on. And if we level the playing field, the idea is everyone gets the same opportunities and hopefully outcomes, then individuals are free to pursue whatever they believe is their own good. Now, the basis for this belief actually grew from a Christian background, believe it or not, the idea that humans are of equal dignity and value regardless of age or gender or socioeconomic status. The fatal flaw, however, is in the highlighting of the ultimate and relative purpose of the individual. It's the what's good for you ultimatum. And sociologists and historians argue it leads to a breakdown in communities and institutions because it can't make room for the shared good of the group. So the popular critique of liberalism is that it becomes a circular firing squad in which there's no sensible way to unravel contradictions in the value system. Here's a, an example from pop culture in, re in recently. J.K. Rowling, for example, has come under intense scrutiny as of late, and she's been labeled a TERF, that is, a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Now, certain streams of feminist theory do not accept transgendered women as actual women. They see that as a compromise of their struggle to advance the rights and the equality of women. So in TERF thinking, a biological man cannot simply claim to be a woman. This violates decades of feminist philosophy. Now, Rowling, as a feminist, on the left of the spectrum... It's, it's really hard for me to do the left and right when you guys is different than mine, but just ignore the gesturing if it's incorrect. So Rowling is on the left as a feminist, and she's picked apart on the left by the liberal mob because she took issue with the PC term, people who menstruate, arguing that those people are called women. So in liberal justice, feminist philosophy and trans advocacy are both in the same camp, but who wins? And on what basis? They're over here devouring one another. Liberalism insists that religious views are to be excluded from the conversation around the function of society and government. And then they proceed to argue their own religious worldview on human rights and freedom and sexuality and on down the list. The whole thing is a mess. But the more prominent theory is probably the utilitarian view. If something makes the majority of people happy, then it is just. We see this kind of rhetoric in things like, well, 70% of Americans believe, or as if the you know, majority consensus makes the thing right or wrong. 
It's also in the whole right side of history rhetoric that's going around a lot online. People used to think like this, but now more of us think something else. So the new view is uh, automatically right. In this sense, this view, the utilitarian view, is less individualistic. Keller actually calls it majoritarian. It's despite the quiet popularity of this particular approach to justice, it has all kinds of logistical and logical problems. By this logic, wasn't Nazi Germany A-OK? -okay? The vast majority of Germany, Germans, Germany's people supported it at the time. In the Bible, the consist, consensus of the majority is never in and of itself any indication of whether or not something is evil. Everyone can be on board for evil, and as the Nazi example illustrates, they often are. Which brings us to the final paradigm. We're almost there, hang in there, which is postmodernism. This view has dominated much of the justice conversation in 2020, and it has been adopted by many, many young people, becoming the flagship religion for the Instagram mob. Keller puts it this way. He says, postmodern critical theory argues, first, the explanation of all unequal outcomes in wealth, well-being, and power is never due to individual actions or to differences in cultures or to differences in human abilities, but only and strictly due to unjust social structures and systems. The only way to fix unequal outcomes for the downtrodden is through social policy, never by asking anyone to change their behavior or culture. Only powerlessness and oppression brings moral high ground and true knowledge. Therefore, those with more privilege must not enter any debate. They have no right or ability to advise the oppressed, blind as they are by their social location. They simply must give up their power. Now, the big problem with postmodern critical theory is that it's replete with contradictions. All objective truth claims about religion or race or gender or sexuality are cultural constructs established to maintain power over the oppressed, argues postmodern critical theory. Except our objective truth claims about religion or race or gender or sexuality. But why? Why is this view right and the other wrong? Just because if the ultimate end is to is to take power from the powerful and redistribute it to the powerless, then they become the powerful. And the cycle just repeats itself. This is, by the way, not a uniquely Christian critique of the theory. It's being argued by any number of academics who are interacting with the view. But it's easy to see why this doesn't square with the biblical vision of justice. Though the Bible does offer an unapologetic critique of power and a not at all subtle priority concern for the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed... The Bible does not resolve this issue by redistributing power or by silencing and shaming the powerful, nor does the Bible suggest that corruption is unique to the powerful and privileged or that corruption flows singularly from power and privilege. All of humanity, good and evil, powerful and powerless, are equally made in God's image and equally broken and sinful. The Bible's justice solution is reconciliation, between people of different races and classes and genders by the way of radical self-sacrificial love. The postmodern view offers a performative identity. To belong, you have to prove your wokeness. Post the right things on Facebook and Instagram. Use the right hashtag the right way on the right day. You better speak up because silence is complicity. And the place to break silence is always and only social media. You better be the best ally. Attend the right events. Read the right people. Avoid the wrong words. Follow the manual. And the frustrating reality is that being the beloved of God is a non-performative identity. That's true of the good guys and the bad guys.
saying or posting the wrong thing cannot shake it. Unlike postmodern justice, the way of Jesus does not seek to dominate other people, to silence and shame enemies. It's no secret that outrage, hysteria, and cancel culture blossomed from postmodern justice in which anyone and everyone who does not bow to groupthink group must be silenced and destroyed. And in the end, neither the libertarian, nor liberal, liberal nor utilitarian, nor postmodern visions of justice can be synchronized with the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. There are some similarities in some of the views, some big, some small, but there are extreme dissimilarities in all of them. None of the world's visions for justice and human flourishing, none of their parties and politicians represent or advocate for the kingdom of God. Mostly, they all do some evil things, and sometimes they do some good things, depending. Now, whew, in my experience, talking about the way early disciples of Jesus did and did not engage the political arena in order to do justice tends to invite, like many of Jesus' teachings, accusations of impracticality and even naivete. It's very difficult for many to imagine significant social change that does not come by way of policy or political power. And if you believe that the best or maybe even only way to enact significant change is through politics and policies and politicians, then your only choice is to participate in the system given. It doesn't take a political scientist to recognize certain limitations in any given system. To best illustrate what I mean, let me defer to the all-time greatest work of ongoing satire, The Simpsons. America, take a good look at your beloved candidate. And if you really can't stand the people in option A, then you run to B and you overlook C in your haste. It's a lot like talking about Jesus' teachings on nonviolence. Many assume that if you aren't willing to, say, kill a crazed gunman, then your only option is to draw a bullseye on your stomach and stand still like this, as if kill or be killed are really the only two possibilities in this ridiculous hypothetical. And we have been similarly duped by our only Kang, or only Kodos, those are the aliens' names, by the way, presentation of our politicized culture so that we have lost a radical vision for justice and reconciliation that cannot be forced by politics nor stopped by them. This Jesus called the kingdom of God. But it's often the case that we don't want the kingdom. We want a side. We want a group. We want a team. We want an ideology that delineates between us and them. In 2020, the us versus them political disparity has colored the conversation around everything from justice to art and entertainment to social media to the coronavirus pandemic, to wearing masks or ordering takeout, to politicians and presidents, everything you do or say or post or watch or listen to, everything, you, everywhere you go and everywhere you don't go reveals your side. And the problem for us as disciples of Jesus is that, sure, if you scour the ideology of your preferred side, you'll find this or that position that fits with Jesus in a certain sense, sometimes maybe through this lens, but you'll never find the Christian political party or the Christian vision for justice in a political party. To keep up the mad scramble for a side means doing weird stuff like 
denouncing the corrupt mor morality of a president in 1998, then using the exact same logic and words to defend the corrupt morality of a president in 2020. Why? Because one belongs to your side and the other one doesn't. And so each of us have to face a frustrating reality of our politically divided world. Will we acknowledge the kingship of Jesus, the supremacy of it, even when it forces us beyond the boundaries of a side? You may well have practical opinions about how the kingdoms of the world should run. That's fine. Everyone does. You may think one policy makes more practical sense than another, that one politician makes more sense than another, in the context of a world government anyway. The danger is in becoming convinced that your political opinions capture the Christian vision for justice and goodness. A political system can't bear that weight, and when it begins to crumble, you will be left to rationalize its downfall. The danger is in becoming convinced that everything hangs on your people in power and that everything will collapse if they aren't. Thinking of this kind inevitably demonizes your political opponents, creates a moral high ground based not on the teachings of Jesus, but on the politics of the world, and ushers us quietly into the hateful outrage boiling up on us, on, around us on all sides. It is easier, I'll give it that, it's easier to convince yourself every Republican is this way, every Democrat is that way, that everything can and should be viewed through the lens of politics. That's what's most important and revelatory about a person is the way that they vote. That's easier. That the only way to change the world is with a vote. But when we return to this strange and subversive story of a people in the first century, a small, persecuted minority whose answer to the evils of empire and the answer to being persecuted by political power was remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. If this does not describe the disposition of the church toward power, then we have disobeyed our king and we need to repent. There is a place for righteous indignation against evil and injustice, and there certainly is a place to recognize and acknowledge the evils and the corruption of the state. And frankly, we've done a lot of it. But we don't do that as the world does. We belong to a different king and a different kingdom. Our king has the truth. Our king has freedom. And if it puts us at odds with every political party and every governmental system on earth and across history, then we will follow him forever, come hell or high water. If we are hated by the right and the left, and if we are forever politically homeless, we will be home in the kingdom. As Paul warned his readers so long ago, so long ago don't hide from the culture, don't reach for power over culture, but live in love in the world in the ways of gentleness and peace and self-sacrificial love, rejecting the corruption of the world around you. There's no culture war. There's no assimilation into the culture. There's an entirely different way of life. May we learn to seek justice and goodness according to our King. And Lord Jesus, teach us to do that. Let's pray together before we worship. 
Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.